All right, good morning, church. It's great to see you all. Let me pray for us once more. Father, as we look to your word now, we ask that you would speak to our minds, to our hearts by your spirit, that you would not only teach us, but rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness. And Lord, uh, we ask, especially this morning, that you would expand our vision of who you are so that we can give to you the only fitting response, which is our joyful and willing worship. We commit this time to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name, and God's people said, amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 11, and be reading just three, well, I guess four, four verses this morning from the end of Romans 11, verses 33 through 36. I'll read the passage for us, and the verses will be on the screen here. And always encourage you to follow along in your own Bibles or your mobile apps. Romans chapter 11, verses 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. This is God's word. Well, uh, it's so good to see all of you today, and I echo what Pastor John said earlier. It's great especially to welcome our college students home for spring break. Enjoy it while it lasts. It goes by fast. One week goes by fast. And kind of unfortunate that you had to lose an hour from daylight savings, but it is what it is. Well, after taking two weeks off, we are resuming this morning our series on our church's core values. I devoted two weeks to the core value of the word, and today I'd like to focus on the second of our five original core values, and that is worship. If you check our website, rccnaperville.org, you'll be able to click a little tab on the top and, uh, and scroll down, and you'll see the core values on our website, and under the heading of worship, you'll find this description. Worship is the act of declaring and properly responding to God's infinite worth. Christians uniquely believe that Jesus is God in human flesh and that he is the Savior of humanity through his death and resurrection. We will therefore extol him and allow his saving work to infuse our songs and sermons. Our worship each Sunday morning will strive for relevance in terms of style and reverence in terms of ethos. That's a lot that's in there, and we'll try to unpack some of that this morning. You know, last weekend, we looked at Romans chapter 14 for those of us who are here or who watched online. Welcome, by the way, for all our friends who are joining us online today. Well, this morning, we're going to uh, consider this short passage we read from Romans 11. So two straight weeks in Romans. Now many scholars and theologians have talked about how, in their view, Romans is on the short list of the most important books in the Bible. In the first 11 chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul describes in really the most profound terms 
how God is saving the world from sin through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul was one of the greatest theologians in the history of the church. But Paul wasn't just a theologian. He was also a missionary. He even had a regular job as a tent maker. The reason I mention this is because when Paul taught theology, he wasn't just coming from the perspective of a scholar or a professor who spent all his time in the library reading and writing while the rest of the world were, was dealing with their real-world problems. No, Paul knew that the gospel is incredibly relevant for everyday life. He knew, for example, that the gospel affects the way we should use our gifts in our abilities to serve the church. We can see this if we read the next chapter, chapter 12. Paul also knew that the gospel teaches us how we should treat one another, other people in our lives, especially folks who may have differing views on certain issues than we hold. I talked a bit about that last Sunday from chapter 14. Paul even knew that God's saving work is relevant for the way we should relate to our government, believe that or not. We can see this if we keep reading Romans into chapter 13. Now, Paul is going to talk about all of these everyday life applications in just a bit, but before he can do that, it almost seems like he needs a break. If he had the option, Paul would have put down his pen so he could pick up a guitar or whatever instrument he had had next to him and break out in a song of praise. Now, thankfully for us, Paul kept writing, and he put the lyrics to paper. And in verse 33... He sings, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. And really, that's the only way that we can properly respond to this God who has saved us. And so our core value statement notes that worship is the act of declaring and properly responding to God's infinite worth. That's what worship is. Worship is our fitting response to our God who holds on to us relentlessly even as we struggle through all the trials and hardships in this broken world. Worship is what fuels our hope that God will one day return and restore all of creation from sin's power and even from sin's very presence. Now there's a lot that we can say from these four short verses. I actually had a classmate in seminary who wrote his entire doctoral dissertation just on this passage. These four verses. So my overview this morning is going to be nothing like that. It'll be very much the spark notes version of Romans 11 verses 33 to 36. I'm going to start with just two quick observations and then I'll offer two applications. So deviating a little bit from your typical sermon format here. Okay, two and then two. Two observations two applications. Observation number one. Our passage teaches us that the finite can't fully understand the infinite. The finite can't fully understand the infinite. I already read the first part of verse 33, but let me read it for us again. Paul sings out, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. There are times when we, as human beings, are confronted with the reality of just how small and even insignificant we really are. 
You know, when I was in elementary school, I went through this phase where I really got into astronomy, and specifically the solar system, the planets. And I remember learning how Earth is just one of nine planets in the solar system. And yes, back then it was nine planets, because in those days, long ago, Pluto was considered a planet. I also learned that many of these other planets are really, really far away. On average, for example, Neptune, the planet Neptune is just over 2.8 billion miles away from Earth. I don't know about you, but that sounds kind of far. Whenever I go on a road trip, I start getting fidgety after the first 50 to 100 miles. That's usually when my bladder starts kind of protesting and find a rest area, find a rest area. I can't even imagine a distance of 2.8 billion miles. And yet, scientists were somehow able to send a vessel that actually traveled that far. I remember reading in high school about how Voyager 2 flew close enough to Neptune to take pictures that revealed things about this planet that astronomers had never known before. And by the way, this was all the way back in 1989. Now, Neptune is the farthest of the planets in our solar system that orbit the sun, and our sun is just one of hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. This galaxy, the Milky Way, spans approximately 100 million light years in distance. Now, you know you're talking about something huge when you have to measure it, not in terms of inches or feet or miles, but how long it takes for the speed of light to travel. Milky Way is 100 million light years in distance. And our Milky Way galaxy is just one of hundreds of billions of galaxies that exist in our observable universe. I remember learning all this during my astronomy phase back in elementary school, and I also remember asking my classroom teacher, when does it all stop? Like, when does it end? And I'll never forget her response. She simply said, it doesn't. It doesn't end. It just keeps on going. And I found that incomprehensible. My finite third grade mind wanted there to be some kind of endpoint, some kind of wall where it stops. If there's anything about God that makes him unique, it's that he is infinite. God was never created. He had no beginning. He'll never have an end. He has just always simply been there, and he will always be there. There's no limit to his presence. He's everywhere. There's no limit to his knowledge. There's no limit to his power. There's nothing that can stop God from doing whatever it is he wants to do. There's no one who can say, I'm sorry, God, you can't do that. There's no one like him. No one. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, there's a verse that talks about how God created all the stars, and he knows them each by name. Scientists now estimate that there are approximately 300 sextillion or so stars in the universe. If you're not sure how to write that, that is a three followed by 23 zeros. And I'm guessing Isaiah probably didn't know this exact number when he wrote this verse under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit. But 
I'm pretty sure when he looked up at the night sky, Isaiah saw more stars than he could possibly count. And yet, he says, God knows each of them by name. Well, in our passage, Paul specifically highlights the infinite depth of God's riches, of his wisdom, his knowledge, his judgment, and his paths. And when he asks in verse 34, who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? I mean, it's a rhetorical question, but the correct answer is obviously nobody. There isn't a single person who has been able to explore the depth and the breadth of God's knowledge and his wisdom so that we can understand him fully. No matter how hard we try, our finite minds just simply can't fully grasp this infinite God. Now we can know him, and we can have a real relationship with him, and we can stand in awe of his wisdom and his power, but we cannot understand him, at least not fully. And we certainly cannot teach him anything. The finite can't fully understand the infinite. That's our first observation this morning. Secondly, our second observation from today's passage is that creation owes everything to its creator. Creation owes everything to its creator. Paul asks another rhetorical question in verse 35. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? And again, the obvious answer is, well, nobody. Nobody has. God doesn't owe anybody anything. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. All of creation owes God everything. God created everything in the universe, and he holds it all together by his mighty power. And that's the point of verse 36. Verse 36, Paul says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now notice carefully the prepositions in this verse because they tell us an awful lot. It says, For from him and through him and for him are all things. God made everything. All things are from him. He is the creator of everything that we see all around us. Not only that, he also keeps it all from falling completely apart. All things exist through him. And God is the goal. God is the purpose for all of creation. It all exists for him. Another translation of our passage puts it this way. For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. God is the ultimate source of all creation. God is the cosmic glue that holds it all together. And God is creation's final goal. Everything started from him. It all continues and holds together in him. And it will finally culminate in him. Everything we have, including our very own lives, everything owes its existence to God. All of creation is fully indebted to him. And so the only fitting way that we can respond to this reality is to declare together with Paul at the end of verse 36, all glory to him forever. Amen. Creation owes everything to its creator. That's our second observation today. And let me offer two important 
benefits, applications that we can gain from this core value of worship. Two important benefits. Benefit one. First, the first benefit of worship is worship reminds us that we are not God. Worship reminds us that we are not God. Our passage teaches us that God has no limits to his wisdom, to his knowledge, and his power. No limits. You and I, on the other hand, well, we're a bit different, aren't we? We have limits. Very much so, as a matter of fact. It's just that we very easily forget that, don't we? We forget that we are not God. We forget that we are not omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient. I think this is why we need to make worship a regular discipline, a core value, if you will, because worship has this unique way of correcting our skewed perspective so that we can remember just how truly frail we are in comparison to this infinite God. In her best-selling book called Liturgy of the Ordinary, author Tish Harrison Warren draws an interesting connection between worship and, well, an ordinary, everyday activity that most of us wouldn't consider sacred, and that is sleep. In this book, she writes, our sleep habits both reveal and shape our loves. A decent indicator of what we love is that for which we willingly give up sleep. She writes, I love my kids, so I sacrifice sleep for them. Often, I nurse our baby or comfort our eldest after a nightmare. I love my husband and my close friends, so I stay up late to keep a good conversation going a bit longer. Or I rise early to pray or take a friend to the airport. But she goes on and says, But my willingness to sacrifice sleep also reveals less noble loves. I stay up later than I should, drowsy, collapse on the couch, vaguely surfing the internet, watching cute puppy videos. Or I stay up trying to squeeze more activity into the day to pack it with as much productivity as possible. My disordered sleep reveals a disordered love, idols of entertainment or productivity. She ends the section by saying, My willingness to sacrifice much-needed rest and my prioritizing amusement or work over the basic needs of my body and the people around me, with whom I'm far more likely to be short-tempered after a night of little sleep, reveals that these good things, entertainment and work, have taken a place of ascendancy in my life. (sighs) Can you relate? (laughs) I can relate. Some of us know that feeling all too well of sacrificing sleep to take care of your young kids. And I know many of us here, we're not getting very good sleep these days because, well, work has been stressful. Maybe some of us are even dealing with a legitimate medical condition. If you or someone you know and love has experienced insomnia, you know how awful that can be. You so badly want to sleep, and for some reason your body won't let you. But many of us can probably admit that we have other, less noble reasons for staying up so late. One of them starts with the letter N. It's red. Ta-da! You gotta wake up in just a few hours, and yet, 
da da. And yes, who suffers the most when we keep sacrificing good rest in the name of leisure or work? Well, I think many of us know the answer. They're sleeping next to you or just down the hallway. In the same chapter, Tish Warren admits, even when my kids are sick and really need me, I can't stay awake with them day and night for long. Our powerful need for sleep is a reminder that we are finite. God is the only one who never slumbers nor sleeps. Yes, so true. No matter how busy we are, no matter how much work we need to get done, no matter how badly our loved ones need us, at some point our bodies will just give out. We need to sleep because, well, we are not God. And in the same way that sleep reminds us of our need for physical rest, worship, this activity of worship together, that reminds us of our collective need for spiritual rest. Quoting to Sherison Warren again, she says, there's a profound connection between the sleep we get on our beds each night and the sacramental rest we know each Sunday in our gathered worship. Both gathered worship and our sleep habits profess our loves, our trusts, and our limits. Both involve discipline and ritual. Both require that we cease on relying on our own effort and activity and lean on God for his sufficiency. Both expose our vulnerability. Both restore. Now, of course, she wrote all this before COVID forced many of our churches like ours to move our worship services online for months, for months. And being able to meet in person like this again is, I think for many of us, a tangible reminder of just how much we lost when we weren't able to gather in person in worship for so many weeks consecutively. And now, I think many of us would agree, we have this entirely new appreciation for the value of being able to physically see one another and audibly hear each other's voices as we sing or even as we go around and greet one another as we just did. And physically and audibly receive together the proclamation of the word, as you are even right now. But gather worship does also require discipline. It does involve some ritual, just like sleep. You and I, we've got to make that effort to get out of bed. Yes, even an hour early. And change our clothes and drive here and maybe even drive here without getting into a fight with our families. Because, yes, for many of us, worship is also a family affair, for better or for worse. But I hope for many of us, we feel, yes, it's a discipline. Yes, it might even feel like a ritual, but it's worth it. It's worth it. I hope, I truly hope that these opportunities to worship together in person has renewed and even restored you in ways that you may not have even realized how much you needed it. Gathering together with God's people for worship offers us the important benefit of reminding us regularly that we are not God. Again, we so easily forget that, and so when we gather this morning, 
we have this benefit of having our perspectives corrected and realigned with reality. We are not God. When we worship, when we sing, when we pray, when we hear the word, when we greet one another as a community, we are, we're, well, we're acknowledging that we're finite, that we're weak, and we need something. We need someone beyond ourselves to stay spiritually alive and not lose hope. Worship reminds us that we are not God. That's its first benefit. Secondly, worship also reminds us to find our rest in God. Worship invites us to find our rest in God. You know, one of the most incredible teachings, most profound teachings of our faith, our Christian faith, is that the the infinite God of this passage, the God that this passage extols as being unsearchable in his judgments, whose paths are beyond tracing out. This God, whom Paul praises in Romans 11, was willing to come near to us as a truly human person. Our core values description for worship notes this important reality about Jesus becoming a man in order to save sinners like us. It says, Christians uniquely believe that Jesus is God in human flesh and that he is the Savior of humanity through his death and resurrection. J.I. Packer, another great theologian who lived a bit closer to our time, expressed this beautifully when he described what it meant for this all-knowing, all-powerful, all-present Son of God to become a man. His book, Knowing God, he says, it meant a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill-treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. Finally, a death that involves such agony, spiritual, even more than physical, that his mind nearly broke under the prospect of it. It meant love to the uttermost for unlovely human beings that they, through his poverty, might become rich. My friends, this is the good news of Christianity. This is the gospel. This is our Savior. Our infinite, unsearchable God became a human being so that he could live a perfect life, die in our place, rise again on the third day, ascend back to heaven where he rules even now, and one day he will return make all things new. And during his days on earth, one of the most comforting words that Jesus ever spoke comes from the final verses of Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light. You know, this has become one of my favorite passages, especially after the pandemic became our new reality almost two years ago to the day, as Pastor John mentioned in his prayer. And this, my friends, is another reason why worship isn't just our duty. It's not just our fitting response to God's infinite worth. It is that. But it's not only that. Worship is also something that you and I desperately need. 
when God calls us together each Sunday morning through his word, when he invites us to come to him, he offers to each of us an invitation, not just to give him his due, our praise, but to also find our true rest in him. Another pastor, Dane Ortland, writes about this in his book called Gentle and Lowly, which is titled right after this passage here. It says the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all of his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, in other words, everything we read in Romans 11, no one in human history has been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites. No hoops to jump through. Goes on and says, the minimum bar to be enforced into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It is all he needs. Indeed, it is the only thing he works with. It says in verse 28 of Matthew 11, tells us explicitly who qualifies for fellowship with Jesus. That is all who labor and are heavy laden. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. And I just love those last two sentences. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and come to Jesus. We sometimes think like that, right? Like, let me fix myself up and get my house in order and then I'll worship. He says, you don't need to do that. He says, your very burden is what qualifies you to come. I know many of us have been feeling a lot of burdens these days. And to each of you, Jesus says, come to me. Come to me. Worship isn't just an important reminder that we're not God. Yes, that's an important benefit, but it's not the only benefit. Worship is also an invitation God's very own invitation for us to come to him as we are. If we very well feel weary or burdened or discouraged or ashamed or overwhelmed, well, then he welcomes especially you. Especially you. We can bring all of that with us to our good shepherd. And when we do, he promises us the gift of true rest. As we sing, as we confess our faith, as we pray, as we give our offering, as we receive his word together, as we greet one another, we can find our true rest in God. That's the second benefit of worship. I hope we will all be able to experience that welcome, that renewal as we gather each Sunday morning and go to him together. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for our time and your word this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to revisit and explore a bit more deeply this core value of worship. Lord, on the one hand, we are floored, absolutely amazed as we're reminded of how great, how majestic indeed, how infinite you are. 
and how small we are in comparison. Lord, we're thankful that we can know you, genuinely know you. We can have a real relationship with you, but Lord, you've also kind of put us in our place this morning by reminding us that we can't know you fully. You're just too big, too great, too beyond our ability to understand. So instead, Lord, we just want to stand in awe of you and give you our praise. You are worthy. Lord, we're thankful as we gather, too, that you give us this opportunity to have our perspective realigned. Lord, we do forget easily that our strength runs out, our knowledge is limited, we can't do everything that we want to do, even though sometimes we are under the misapprehension that we are God. Thank you for this humbling reminder, and Lord, thank you even more for the promise of true rest that you offer to us, Jesus, as our gentle and lowly Savior. We're thankful that though you are the very form of God, you did not consider your quality with God a thing to be used for your own prerogative, but you laid that aside. You became one of us, obedient even to the point of death, even death on the cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted you through your resurrection, your ascension, and given to you the name that is above every name, that the name of our Savior, our Lord, our Good Shepherd, our gentle and lowly friend, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Thank you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.